Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 31 of the Fiduciary You podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to quickly mention the launch of my new tech platform for retirement plan advisors called Fiduciary RX. It's the simplest way for advisors to diagnose, prescribe, and improve fiduciary wellness for plan sponsors all in less than 10 minutes. It gets prospects to yes faster, it gets clients to yes easier, and the feedback from advisors so far has been tremendous. So if you're a retirement plan advisor, head over to www.fiduciaryworks.com to sign up for a demo and check it out. I think you're going to want to add Fiduciary RX to your tech stack. Now, my guest today is Tom Schrant, who's a vice president and partner at Lockton Affinity LLC, which is a part of the Lockton Companies. Previously, he was the CEO of Professional Liability Consulting Group and VP of Sales at North American Professional Liability Insurance Agency, or NAPLIA. Now, Tom specializes in E&O and ERISA fiduciary liability insurance at Lockton Affinity, and he's a true expert in the area. In fact, we originally met at an FI360 conference nearly 15 years ago, and after sitting in his session about ERISA fiduciary liability insurance, I was so impressed that I hired him for my RIA. Due to ERISA litigation, the fiduciary liability insurance market is really in turmoil and it's a disaster. Many plan sponsors either can't get coverage or they're being quoted pretty insane deductibles that make it inaccessible. And so I thought it would be smart to have Tom on the show to talk about what's happening. In this episode, he and I discuss the current market for ERISA fiduciary liability insurance, how the market has changed due to ERISA litigation, why many carriers are backing away from it due to fear or lack of understanding, what plan sponsors and their advisors can do to respond, why it's more important than ever to work with an insurance partner who specializes in E&O and ERISA fiduciary liability insurance and has the right relationships with carriers, and much more. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fiduciary U podcast. Tom Schrant, welcome to the Fiduciary U podcast. Thank you very much, Josh. Great to be here. I'm excited to have you. You and I have a longstanding relationship. Going back, gosh, it's, it's, it's probably 12 or 13 or 14 years. I got connected with you, I want to say at an FI360 conference around like, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, around 2008. Um, and I sat in a session that you did on E&O insurance for RIAs and, and subsequent to that wound up um, hiring you for, for my firm and, and you did a great job over the years. And you know, fiduciary liability insurance and E&O insurance is a, is a hot topic uh, right now because the dynamics of the market have changed so much. And so I think this is a really timely discussion. And I think, I think especially advisors are going to get a lot out of, out of this conversation today. So I'm really excited to get into it. Definitely agree. There is certainly a lot going on right now. Indeed. Indeed. And there's, you know, there's articles, I, I think, uh, 401k specialist and plan advisor, you know, a couple of months ago had, had articles about just how the fiduciary liability insurance market is changing. And then we'll, we'll get into this. I actually was consulting to a large two and a half billion dollar plan in the fall uh, around doing some strategic planning for them. 
not as their advisor, but 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 some more kind of one-off consulting. And they had run into a major issue in their renewal. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But, you know, for listeners that may not be aware of, of you or locked in affinity mm-hmm. and, and what you do, why don't you give a little bit of background about about you and about your team and the space that you you specialize in? Okay. Sounds great. Yeah. So I'm a partner with Locked In Affinity. It's the group insurance program division of Locked In Companies. So Locked In Companies is the eighth largest independently owned, private, privately owned insurance brokerage firm in the world. Within my group at within Locked In Affinity, I head up our specialty lines programs, uh, which encompasses our financial institutions division. So we manage, uh, we're the national plan administrator for Lloyd's of London, we developed this investment advisor ENO and plan advisor specific policy form that we distribute on behalf of London to fee only independent advisors. We have the cyber liability, you know, counterpart type products that that complement the ENO. And then of course we we always help our plan advisors help their plan sponsor clients with first party fiduciary liability insurance. So at, at the hub, we're a specialty firm basically in the financial services industry. Got it. I think there's some good conversations that we can have and maybe even as we get in kind of defining the difference between you. Know, I, I, it's funny. I, one of the things I remember from that session years and years ago was you talked about for RIAs, the importance of, I believe you called it like ERISA, like affirmative coverage or something, uh, something along those lines yep. um, that specifically kind of carves out and addresses RIAs that work with ERISA plans. Um, mm-hmm. You talked about just a moment ago with plan sponsors that they have first-person liability coverage. So mm-hmm. maybe talk for a minute, like what's the difference between what's the difference between the two of those? Yeah, no, that's a really good starting point. So first-party versus third-party fiduciary liability insurance, you know, exists exposure anyway exists at the plan level and at the service provider level, obviously. So that's sort of the line in the sand. That divides those two products. So an ENO product is designed to cover the professional services that a professional renders to a paying client. The client pays for that service, in this case, investment advice. If the client alleges that they're damaged as a result of that, that's the trigger for an ENO claim. And that's third party fiduciary liability for an investment advisor, a third party administrator, a record keeper. The client in a plan setting, the plan sponsor, they have a first party exposure, meaning their exposure to, you know, do the right things, you know, for the employee benefit plan for their participants. So that's a isolated exposure versus a services exposure on the third party, you know, side. And so talk a little bit about how the market is evolving. I mean, I know historically, and so I think what we can talk about is like what relates to RIAs, because obviously, you know, wise, that's kind of changing. And then, then for plan sponsors, it's getting a lot harder for plan sponsors to get coverage. I mean, I think in the past, you know, a lot of, you know, fiduciary liability coverage is maybe like a rider on, you know, a general policy was kind of like throw in coverage. Pretty much any, any general PNC agent could just kind of check the box and, and carriers would, you know, would throw that in for quite frankly, not, not, it was pretty inexpensive coverage for companies and for plan sponsors. But obviously with the just explosion of ERISA litigation over the past 10 to 15 years, that market is really changing. You know, this this large plan I consulted to was interesting. It was about a $2.5 billion plan and they they were having trouble accessing the insurance market. They, they had a, a renewal coming up 
And the carrier kind of threw at them like a $10 million deductible for their plan, which which was absolutely kind of untenable. And they had been working, I think, with a just kind of a general broker that really didn't specialize like like someone like you in the market. And really, there was not a whole lot to do for them. So maybe talk about the evolution of fiduciary liability coverage over the, 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 you know, the past 10, 12, 15 years and where we find ourselves now in the market. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good question. I mean, so I'll start backwards. Right now, where we st- stand in the market, we're in crisis, you know, from a fiduciary liability capacity perspective. So back in the day, as you pointed out, fiduciary liability at the first party level, plan sponsor is is typically packaged from the carrier offering perspective in, a, in like a management liability suite of product offering. So that includes like directors and officers, liability insurance, employment practice, liability insurance the fiduciary liability insurance, and maybe some crime like bonding. That's like a typical wrap type management liability intended to cover the exposures of a company offering plans and things of that nature, managing employees. So the fiduciary, as you, as you spot on pointed out, was the lowest price point of that package back in back historically anyway. So it always ended up being a throw in, you know, for hundreds of dollars into this management liability where the underwriters were really concerned about underwriting the directors and officers exposure or the employment practice liability type, you know, exposures to state jurisdictions and things of that nature. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, and we'll, and we'll offer fiduciary liability insurance for a million and it's 300 bucks. You know, but now, you know, and, and that was that was always annoying, you know, to me as a, as a broker specializing in this space, working with the best, you know, plan advisors in the country, your next client there, right? So, you know, th- there was always this interest for my client base that I was servicing from an Eno perspective saying, hey, I want to help my plan sponsor clients get fiduciary liability insurance. I want to educate them. Off of- so through the years, I worked with a lot of advisors to do just that. I say annoying in, in, the, in the front end of that because it never netted to any sales, you know, to me as an insurance broker or our company and our division. We did a lot of educating. And, and as I reflect on it and I think back, I'm like, why would that be the case? Well, it was just easy to get, right? Like we just talked about, it was just thrown in. It was it's obviously important, a very critical coverage point. But when it's not hard to get and there's so much supply, anyone can do it. But now as these, you know, the evolution is that these excessive fee claims have entered the landscape and it's just took this very inexpensive product from an insurance carrier's perspective. Like they're putting these crazy limits out there for hundreds of dollars. These excessive fee claims come in and there's billion dollar or million dollar settlements. And these fiduciary carriers are sitting there with a couple hundred dollars premium in their in their piggy bank, you know, from the from the risk. And they're writing limit losses on their hundred dollar premiums for fiduciary liability. So clearly the market has shifted. So so fiduciary liability, certainly in the in the large plan world, has turned into has went from a throw-in coverage line and a and a standard management liability policy to an absolute carve out standalone need type product. And not only that, it's being completely scrutinized from an underwriting perspective. We're seeing carriers actually add supplemental questions to their applications specifically around fees and how do you, you know, like the excessive fee conceptual exposures that are, they're just throwing in these plan sponsors. And you could just see the result is a higher premium, very high retention or deductible, as you just, you know, explained with your large client. They're at the point, it's a sustainability issue at the carrier level. They don't, they can't charge enough premium 
for the limits that they're putting out for what's going on in the in the world mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Success of P claims is this succinct way to put it. Are you finding carriers that are just basically kind of folding their tent up and saying, you know what, we're not even offering this coverage? Hundred percent, one hundred percent. It's it, it's a capacity issue now. It went from all the supply who wants it to. Nope, we don't want it. We want nothing to do with those million dollar claims. We, we're not, we, we've changed our underwriting appetite as the carrier. We no longer write fiduciary liability insurance, but we'll write employment practices. We'll write E&O, we'll write directors and officers. But no, thank you for, for that small, inexpensive piece, you know, that is potentially a ticking bomb, you know, for an underwriter. And mainly just because they don't have the, the they can't charge enough premium to underwrite. You know, obviously you want to charge and you, you hope clone... Insurance carriers, I would say, probably hope that, you know, they can charge premium and that there are no claims and that the premiums they collect are higher than the claims they have to pay out. Mm-hmm. But now they're just that dynamic does not work. Yeah. And 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 only the larger, ca- you know, it, it just in general, not just fiduciary insurance, but any insurance program management, it's crit- it's a critical mass game. Really, you need enough in the pot or the, you know, the coffins to handle any claim that might come in. So these smaller carriers that were just in it and, oh, we'll throw it in, they might've got hit or got scared with a with a potential claim and that's when they folded up their tent and they're out. So you are seeing the main, you know, the Chubbs, the Travelers, the Hartfords, mainstream type carriers out there still offering fiduciary insurance, but are they <laughs> with a $10 million retention? Or, you know, I mean, it's just, it's an interesting space, that's for sure. You mentioned though the 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 questions. I I probably two and a half years ago, my largest client was a was a billion dollar plan, and I get an email one day from the head of comp and benefits, and she says, "Hey, I'm attaching this questionnaire. We are getting our we're going through our renewal for our fiduciary liability insurance, and we got this questionnaire. And can you help me fill it out?" And I said, "Yeah, no problem." So I open up the attachment and it's like an eight page questionnaire that was totally dialed in. It was all about excessive fees. It was asking very, very knowledgeable questions around obviously what the process for fees were. So what, what from a benchmarking perspective, it was asking things like, how are fees negotiated? Are they per capita? Are they pro rata? Really focused on record keeping fees, especially Mm-hmm. How are they, you know, applied? Even specific questions around, like, have you or any of your employees been contacted by the following law firms? And it was, you know, Schlichter, Bogart, and Denton, and it was was Kaposi Adler, and there were a couple of other yeah. ones there that obviously are the were kind of the big players in in bringing these claims against large plan sponsors. And you know, it was it, it you know, I. I I don't know if that was a compliance issue back in the day or not. Not really my problem anymore. But but I basically filled out the questionnaire and kind of just kind of provided the answers of like, this is the process we go through. We had just gone through a comprehensive record keeping RFP and benchmark. So the timing was actually really good because I could kind of highlight what we had done. And, 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 you know, we had negotiated a pretty significant amount of fee savings. So I could kind of highlight that. And, and again, this was probably two and a half years ago and, and all was well and good, but it was really interesting to me about this questionnaire. And clearly it was somebody, it was a, a, a carrier for a moment. I, I wondered, I was like, I wonder if Tom wrote this. Uh, <laughs> I had nothing to do with that. No, take the fifth. But I did a quick little Google search and sure enough, 
this questionnaire had been making the rounds with some large plan sponsors. Nevin Adams had wrote, written about it a, a few years ago that this had been had been popping up. So clearly, that was probably, at least from my perspective, around the time that these carriers started to like, you know, pop their head up a little bit and say, "Hey, we need to start thinking. We need to start thinking differently." What is the underwriting process? So now, and, and this is probably good for you business wise, right? It, it when probably frustrating, right? That that when anybody can offer it, and you don't really need to be a specialist in order to kind of access the 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 market for plan sponsors. But since that 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 world has changed now, what's the process you typically go through, or you take a plan sponsor through in order to try to get them coverage and make them attractive to the marketplace? Yeah. So from a plan sponsor perspective, I mean, you're right. You, you referenced that supplemental question. It's funny that month, I, I probably got that email to me probably seven times in one month when it, when it first launched from advisors, like things, you, you know, that, that, you know, folks that, like yourself that got into that same situation from their clients. So I can almost pinpoint when it was launched and I saw several carriers using the same form or similar questions and things of that nature. So you made me laugh, uh, you know, thinking, thinking from the past there. But, you know, it's just generally speaking in underwriters, I mean, that's I view that as a good thing when they're asking questions from a carrier perspective, because as an underwriter, if they don't understand something, the answer is always no, <laughs> no, or very expensive. You know, so that the supplemental questions were healthy and, and, and I was happy to see them. But what they ended up do, with what they're doing is ending up, you know, netting out a lot of declines, you know, from an application perspective. I mean, so so the underwriters are asking the question is not just to know, it'd be nice to know, obviously the answers are impacting their decision, whether either to offer insurance, period, and the story, or how much to offer that insurance for. So, you know, the question, so how, what I do to your point, as far as, or what we try to do for our clients is, is be, be better than the average agent, be better than the, the generalist that. I get an application from my client. I send it to a carrier. I get a quote. I then deliver that quotation to my my client. I did my job as an insurance broker. Great. It, it's not that simple in these tough markets. So an insurance application is going to ask a lot of questions. Now, even more questions, as we just talked about, about certain things like what we do. And I, I advise anybody from a brokerage perspective that's listening to this, that you need to provide these underwriters with more than what's on the application. You know, the application's asking questions for very specific reasons. We try to highlight things that aren't on the application to put our applicant in a better position to get better terms, to, to try to answer the underwriter's questions before they ask them or their concerns that they're not asking and they have them anyway. So things like highlighting if, if the plan sponsor works with us, uh, like a, a fiduciary consultant professional that specializes in it. I'd say that's a that's the cost of doing business today. You know, before it wasn't. I mean, for our industry, any significant plan that's not using a third party consultant is really exposed. I mean, this is complicated. You could think you're doing the right things, but I mean, it's ever changing and and moving. It's a moving target. So, I mean, just to insulate yourself from a, another professional's perspective, if you get caught into a claim, is you know part of your defense, right? If you're you're ever brought to that suit, so. So long-winded answer to your question is, is the, the, the process is we need to do more as an insurance broker to highlight the goodness of our applicants to these underwriters because it's not a supply-friendly you know, environment. They're very stingy. They're very skeptical. 
they don't want to lose their job, the underwriters, if they you know write a policy and and it, and it turns out to be a limit loss. So it's a it's a dicey proposition. Right? Talk a little bit about because you and I have had this conversation before. It sounds like these carriers don't really understand. They don't understand the market, and because and and they don't understand kind of the you know the real world, the market, and because this is an area where they're having trouble getting their head around. You know, like you said, the answer is either no or, you know, the limits and the coverage and the premiums are so, like you said, are they really like you can offer or quote the business, but in reality, it is so off the reservation that nobody's going to like take you Quoting it not to, not to win the business. <laughs> Please don't take this. <laughs> exactly. So what are some of the challenges you're finding as you're talking to carriers? Like where are some of the the kind of the hot buttons or the, the, the issues, maybe the, the landmines where like those conversations, what are they struggling to, to understand? You and I talked before we started recording and I had told you about the, the, the episode I had with Jerry Schlichter last summer. And, and we talked a lot about the economics of ERISA litigation from a plaintiff's perspective. And, you know, he was saying that he thought, thought that lawsuits were going to come down market further, but he felt like the $200 million kind of plan size was mm-hmm. really the, was really the floor just because of the economics. You know, these cases are highly complex. They're highly involved and they take a long time. ABB is an example, you know, one of the very first um, mm-hmm. ERISA lawsuits, you know, that was filed in 2006. It didn't finally get settled until 2019 because it went through a number of different appeals and he had to carry that cost the entire time. And he, you know, he's like, you know, they took like something like $18 million is what they made from that case. But he said, what, what, what people don't realize he's like, I get criticized because of $18 million, but he's like the attorneys for the defense during that 13 year period build like $43 million to the plan sponsor in legal fees and so because he thought the bar, just these cases, they are so involved, down market, the economics just don't make sense. And so you get a lot of advisors that are out there and kind of fear monger, you know, the threat of liability down market, you know, and not even like the under $10 million, but, you know, if you're under the $200 million threshold, you know, the, the, the likelihood of getting, getting involved in a risk litigation it's not impossible, but it's very, very, it's very improbable in most cases. And so like the carriers, you know, they think that, you know, if you're a $5 million plan or you're a 500 or a 5 billion, that potential risk exposure is all the same. I mean, the reality is that's not, you know, we've heard a lot about cases coming down market. They really have not in a meaningful way. What are some of the challenges carriers are having in kind of understanding that? Or are they just painting every plan and every all, all ERISA, you know, all fiduciary liability kind of first party coverage? Are they painting with a broad brush and just assessing it the same for everybody? Good question. Unfortunately, they are painting it with a broad brush and, and just looking at the fiduciary liability. I, I know about these excessive fee claims. I want nothing to do with that or I want I'll play, but I need X and big retention. So. You know, it's a conversation that my team's having daily with underwriters trying to make that very logical point because Jerry uh, Schlichter is correct. I mean, I mean, these attorneys work on contingencies, right? And these these suits take forever and they're expensive to administrate, you know, as, as it goes. Now, 
they're easy in, in the respect of their cookie cutter. It's, you know, the playbook's there, right? Oh, I have to do that. It's almost a cut and paste probably exercise. It is. I actually have because it, it, you, you had like people now that literally would just cut and paste like the arguments. He built the playbook over the years and now like other firms are coming in and being like, oh, great. Like literally word for word, cut and pasting. Yeah. Like typos brought over exactly. and whatnot. Yeah. So that, that, that concept is, is real, you know, from an underwriter's mindset, like, okay, this, this is not hard for it to do what they're missing in my opinion or our opinion is the economic comment. Like you're right. Like I, we haven't seen any, any like excessive fee claims below. Yeah. I would think around that 200 million mark or so it typically is a larger, you know, plan thing. And obviously it's, that, you know, the damages just multiply faster, you know, in, in that world, making it economically sound uh, for this. But from the underwriter's perspective, it's frustrating because they, they're acknowledging the exposure, but they're not acknowledging the reality of what's going to happen. And they're taking like knee jerk reactions of like, nope, we're not we're not interested. It, you know, we might have we might have sent a fiduciary liability submission out in 2009 and got 13 carriers back with different proposals. Oh, pretty much but we'll send them out to the same 13 carriers and maybe get two back with <clears throat> questions not you know additional questions maybe i'll yeah. offer a term with this estimate. it's night and day from where it was and what's interesting down market is you know i would say that the risk down market plans the greater risk you know advisors um in the industry we want to talk about the risk of fiduciary liability fiduciary breaches down market plans actually you know, that isn't a major risk, I don't think. The bigger risk are operational failures and, you know, having to go through, you know, Epicurs or do a, a voluntary correction mm-hmm. uh, program. And, and because the plan wasn't administered properly, maybe an employer had, you know, they had a, a cohort of, of employees who were met the eligibility requirements, but for whatever reason, the payroll system missed it. And then these employees weren't allowed to be eligible or, or weren't given the, the chance to join the plan. And that wasn't found for a couple of years. And next thing you know, you know, you've got to calculate gains and losses. And I helped, you know, clients through the years that, that had like, quite frankly, you know, well into the six figure corrections that they had to go through because they had internal processes that created problems and issues that had gone unseen. Are you finding the same with, you know, I know that you can get, you know, you get fiduciary liability coverage for breach claims, but things like employee benefits, liability insurance, what is it? EBLI, there's EBLI and EPLI, the employer practices liability insurance. Mm -hmm. I would imagine EBLI is the coverage that targets, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but, but targets more of those kind of administrative issues that a plan sponsor could have. And fiduciary liability policy depends, uh, but, you know, they, they both would respond potentially to the administrative issues. And I agree. I mean, at, at downstream, I mean, that is really the exposures for the smaller employers out there. You know, like one claim that came to mind on from a fiduciary liability perspective was uh, it was a, it was a health benefit administrative hiccup, like mistake, new employee onboarding. They missed the paperwork or yep. whatever to, to get this employee on. God forbid, two weeks later, the employee it's cancer. Not on the plan, obviously not able to be put on the plan now because of the mistake. 
huge claim paid to the, you know, the carrier just worked the claim for the, right. the damages. Right. But I mean, that's nothing to do with excessive fees, but right. Just your responsibility to be a fiduciary for the, for your participants, you know? So, so we see that. So that, that's the, that, that's my argument or our argument to the, to the underwriters. Let's get to the root of the exposure for the smaller plans. It's underwrite like we should be and not think of unrealistic things, you know, but has that market changed like for like EBLI or EPLI? Has that market changed in the same way fiduciary liability? State by state wise. So employment practice liability insurance has certainly changed in California just because of the wage and hour laws Mm -hmm. or the ease of filing claims around the wage and hour, you know, questions have exploded that market, but that's an isolated thing. Carriers have got their mind around it in a, in a carrier, you know, because fiduciaries managed by ERISA, it's a national, you know, standard there. There is no geographic pockets where it gets specific. So it's across the board. Yeah. And these small carriers are just, like I said before, it's, it's not worth it for them to, they can't charge enough premium to put the, in their minds, you know, the, the exposure out there, the, the limits Right. So let's talk about four RIAs and you mentioned kind of E&O. You know, we definitely saw when I was at Greenspring and I kind of was point person for like our coverage and whatnot. And, and what was interesting was, you know, coverage was it didn't seem like tied to our assets per se. It was tied more to our revenue. I don't know if that was correct or not, but we saw our premiums. Obviously, as we got bigger, we saw our premiums go up. What are you seeing in kind of the marketplace uh, around E&O? And what, you know, what, what should RIAs especially be focused on when they're thinking about the coverage, the third-party coverage that they can get for the professional services they offer? Yeah. So what we're seeing, I mean, you're right. I mean, so in E&O, whether you're a financial advisor, a doctor, a lawyer, an architect, that revenues is always the main driver in determining a premium with the logic being this, you know, you, the professional firm have charged your fees, you collect it this much. And then it's just a, um, a measuring stick for how much exposure is out there that you could make a mistake as a professional. And then it drills down from there. Like, okay, what are you doing? specific areas of practice wise to generate those fees. And then it gets into, you know, are that are you recommending alternative investments or something a little more exotic than the publicly traded instruments? And, and it, it drills down from there from an underwriting perspective. That's, that's sort of the, the, the mathematical tree to get to a premium basically. So we're seeing rates certainly not go down in the E&O marketplace, but they're not, they're not being affected like they are in the first party fiduciary liability world where we'll see like four times, you know, renewals being implemented. We're not seeing that on the E&O side. Cyber liability, different podcast, different conversation. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about is, that. It's uh, on par with fiduciary in the, in the craziness, of, yeah. you know, uh, environment. But but yeah, I mean, the E&O market is, is steady. We, we have our arms around it. Things that get the underwriter's attention from an underwriting perspective are the more out of the box, creative type things that private play, things that aren't registered, things like that, that don't have that oversight from a regulatory body as an, an investment instrument anyway, become, you know, a little more concerning to an underwriter if they see that application. Right. One of the things, the uh, affirmative coverage. So, you know, yeah. you RIAs, what's the difference in like what? Are there differences between maybe a standard 
you know, policy in the RA community versus for maybe a firm that just does private wealth versus a firm that actually does 401k. So you, you mentioned it on the, on the beginning of our talk. When we met back in 08, I was giving a presentation with a couple of colleagues of mine on that very point, because at that point in the marketplace, the E&O policy forms, the carriers, remember there's multiple ones, so there, there's not one that we can just compare. But generally speaking, what we were seeing at that time was either fiduciary exclusions on, the, on an E&O policy, like I, I don't want to cover a plan advisor. I just want to cover a wealth manager or something like that because I'm petrified of ERISA and the costs that come with that. So in that day, we either saw an exclusion, we either saw silent wording, like no vague wording. It, it wasn't, you know, the policies weren't excluding fiduciary services, but they weren't affirmatively stating that they were covering them in the in the definition section of professional service. So I like to th- think that we had a hand in that from, from that day to this day. The, Carriers forms have evolved that generally speaking, I'm not presenting that topic anymore, meaning that the E&O carriers have caught up with the fiduciary you know, duty, responsibility and, and, and evolution of DOL defining it and whatnot, that any advisors in a fiduciary capacity. So we have to cover it. And as the brokerage community, we beat the carriers and underwriters up enough that they've just now improved their policy forms to cover fiduciary services as a core offering in the services. So if you're a wealth manager and you have four or five, you know, retirement plans, the same policy can cover all your types of services today, where in, in 08, it might've been, you, you probably had to pay a little bit more attention to that, you know, yeah, maybe get an endorsement for, for fiduciary. Our product that we, we administer has affirmative language. We have a, a carve out endorsement. We define ERISA and all the relative like voluntary compliance. Like we try to take like a first party fiduciary liability policy and overlay it with uh, an E&O policy because, you know, at the plan advisor perspective, he or she as a plan advisor has the same exposures that the plans, their client have right at claim time, you know, the compliance, the, the, the voluntary things that they need to do to fix the plan. So, so coordinating the language and the policy to, to trigger properly. You know, I I would say good work over the years that we've developed. Are you seeing difference when it comes to 321 versus 338? You know, that's the the interesting, you know, a lot of RIAs have like they pitched the 338 services. You know, as a 321, and I think what you've seen in a lot of these, in in some more recent cases, SeaWorld was, was an example. You're starting to see vendors be named in these lawsuits. So like that SeaWorld case, an advisor, the advisory uh, firm was named in it. They weren't a defendant, but they were, they were named as part of it. I think what, 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 what you haven't really seen is it's been kind of the rare case where you've had actually an advisor get named as an actual defendant. Mm-hmm. But this whole idea of being a 338, I mean, the, 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 the pitch is always like, hey, in the event you get sued, like, you know, we take on that liability. It's a 321, you know, you don't have discretion. Does the insurance carrier market kind of understand that? Because, the, you know, as a 321, I would say your risk is pretty, it's pretty minimal because you don't have discretion. As a 338, and, you know, my worry always is you've got these you know, you've got these, these RIAs that, that 
you know, I know we tried to increase our coverage over the years as our assets grew and because it was more time to kind of like our revenue, like we, a lot of RAs, I've seen this, have relatively small coverage relative to the assets that they're responsible mm-hmm. for. Actually, shockingly, shockingly low. And, you know, if the pitch is like, hey, you know, hire us, we'll be a 338, you know, you, you, you know we take on the, the discretion and liability here. God forbid, though, that advisor actually gets named as a defendant. And the plan sponsor basically says, hey, not our issue. We hired these folks over here. But if those, if that firm doesn't have claims paying ability, in some ways, I would argue that that appointment isn't going to be prudent. If I'm a plan sponsor and I hired and appointed a 338 that didn't have sufficient coverage relative to my plan, but I didn't really know. Branch of fiduciary responsibility. Right? Yeah, like at the end of the day, like hiring an advisor that doesn't ha- to be a three thirty eight that doesn't have claims paying ability, I would argue, kind of makes that appointment potentially invalid. I don't think we've really seen that a whole lot. But yeah, do carriers understand? Like, do they do they rate three twenty one versus three thirty eight differently? Mm-hmm. They they do, uh, and it depends on the philosophy of the carriers. Like I can think of a carrier that, as you pointed out, 321 non-discretion. Okay. That's safer, you know, from a, from an exposure perspective. So I'll credit that, or I'll give a better, you know, better rating factor for that as opposed to 338 percentage wise in our program. And I mentioned earlier, like the submission and working with the right professionals and things of that nature. 338. I have our underwriters at London willing to provide credits for the right applicants, meaning if the applicant can demonstrate that they have the specialty designations or have done, you know, coursework or are are providing their clients with, you know, I'll say outside of the normal pools, you know, to help educate their committees and plans, you know, plan sponsors to educate them. I'll argue with our underwriters that a 338 advisor that is meeting all these checking all these boxes that we're considering as a, you know, as a, as a prudent professional should be a lower exposure than someone that doesn't have these designations and is saying, Hey, here's my advice committee, do it or not. And maybe they do it. Maybe they didn't understand it. So, I mean, the, the answer is it, it differs from carrier to carrier. The easy answer is 321 is a lower exposure than 338 because of the discretion. But I think that there's a very valid argument to say that 338 shouldn't be more expensive if that professional is truly a professional with the right designations, doing the right things for his or her clients and things of that nature. And I think it could be a benefit to the rate and as opposed to a, a negative. And I've seen this just part of the challenge in the advisor world over the past five to seven years is everybody says the same thing. Now you go on websites and everybody talks about the same set of services and you know, in the same way that just because somebody went to medical school doesn't mean they're a great doctor. Like they may have the, you know, they may have the the credentials after their name, but there's a difference between just like in any industry, you know, the difference between a great doctor and an average doctor, like that's not a small gap. That's a major gap. And I would say from what I've seen is and this is a real challenge for plan sponsors because they don't know how to discern this. And I would argue that carriers don't know how to discern this. And mm-hmm. it sounds like you're trying to help, 
you know, help make carriers smarter. But just because somebody says they specialize or, you know, has lots of plans, like the difference between the work that's actually being delivered, just because somebody says they're a 338, like there, there are, there's a wide variance in terms of, of how good advisors actually are. But that's mm-hmm. really hard. And plan sponsors, like they don't know how to discern. They don't know what, you know, a good service model is versus a bad mm-hmm. service model. They don't know what, you know, really high quality advice is versus very run of the mill advice. They just know that everybody says they do the same things. And maybe that's part of your job. It sounds like educating these carriers is like, look, for this, let's say firm in particular, you know, you have two firms that say they're 338s, but this one in particular like here's the evidence to kind of demonstrate yeah. so, they are actually a, a, a much better flavor of 338 than this one over here. For example, this 338 advisor is working with this particular ERISA law firm that nationally is, is recognized, you know, therefore their client facing contracts are reviewed. But so things like that, like who is the advisor working with and, and what is the advisor providing outside of the normal services are, are the things that underwriters like eat up, you know, that they, they can't hear enough about to get excited to offer terms, offer good terms and things of that nature. And, and they're, they're not on applications, those type of questions. Right. Right. So let's just kind of shift the conversation for a few minutes because you, 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 you brought up a good topic earlier. And I think it, it, you know, we've seen obviously this, like our financial institution policy. And I think a lot now, right. It's, it's, there's a heavy focus on cyber security. The DOL has become very active and provided much more specific guidance around cyber. You know, the, the, the record keepers in particular, and I know a lot of advisors now through RFPs and due diligence and having conversations around helping plan sponsors uh, really understand the cyber practices of their record keeper, which has a lot of, of personally identifiable information or PII. What are you seeing in, in terms of the cyber market as mm-hmm. it relates to both ERISA plans, but RIAs in in general, you know, if you think about like a Fidelity or an Empower or a Vanguard or a T. Rowe Price, you know, mm-hmm. they're spending tens of millions of dollars on their security protocols and practices. You know, a lot of RIAs that are smaller don't have the same type of IT infrastructure and whatnot. Like, what are you seeing in the cyber yeah. in the cyber world? Yeah, so I mean, the cyber world is rivaling the fiduciary marketplace as a as a as a hard to place you know supply type issue. Again, it was very commonplace to have a lot of different carriers, and then all these breach claims, uh, ransomware claims, fraudulent instruction claims are are all you know even more highlighted since COVID. You know, the the work from home you know type experience just got all these fraudsters real excited, you know, to, to penetrate, to take advantage, you know, of, of these, of the U S companies. And I mean, claims are, so the, the point I'll make about from a, from an RIA, the real life cyber liability exposure, isn't the data breach that targets all, you know, like or home Depot or, you know, what have you, it's the ransomware claim that, that, that's going to hijack your system. This is happening. You know, that will shut everything down and, and, and ask you for a payment of, $325,000 and we'll give you your systems back. And, you, and, and and this is literally happening on a daily basis, these ransom claims. So that's a real prevalent and plan advisors have access to large balances, you know, participant balances. So they're 
they're like the second largest target from these fraudsters to, to go after, not just investment advisors, plan advisors. So we're seeing, you know, they're definitely under the microscope. So yeah, the cyber liability exposure that an RIA listening to this needs to have fraudulent instruction coverage built into their policy. It's not just, I have cyber, then it must be covered. It's a, it's a specific thing that you need to look at and then ransomware coverage. And then of course, client notification coverage, God forbid you, you had a breach and you needed to notify all your clients and things of like that. That's pretty commonplace on, on all cyber reforms, but the fraud and the, and the ransom is not a commonplace thing. It's either sublimited, excluded, similar to what we're talking about fiduciary on the ENO side back in the day. It's uh it's a complex buy right now for a financial institution. And and I'd argue the smaller, the less sophisticated firm is more exposed, right? You don't have those resources and those vendors to, you know, to, to hire basically to, to insulate your system. So, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think the big custodians on our RA side are getting much more stringent about, you know, I think I just saw that Schwab like requires, I think at least a million dollars in, Cyber and social, social engineering. Coverage, social engineering. Yeah. We, we, we actually at my old firm, like we, we actually in, uh, ran into some of those, some of those issues and, and our ops person and, and who helped with compliance actually did a phenomenal job. You know, there was a client at one point, we got an email from them. I think they were like an interior decorator. And the email basically was like, Hey, you know, I'm with a client right now. We're decorating their place. I need to buy furniture for them. Can you send me, you know, $15,000 out of my account? Mm -hmm. And um, kudos to our, our, our ops person. You know, she was, she emailed back and said, Hey, you know, not a problem, but kind of our policy is like, we need kind of verbal, verbal confirmation. Call me at this number and we'll get the process taken care of. Didn't hear anything from. Email comes a little bit later, like, I need this money. Um, and it was like a series of over like eight hours of like, I don't know, three or four emails that got increasingly angry. Mm -hmm. And she was trying to reach out to the client, couldn't get the client, ultimately got the client on the phone. And the client's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But what was fascinating was, you know, and we reached out to the police and kind of on their behalf and got account numbers changed and and, and all these different things. But the social engineering aspect, like whoever had hacked their email account, clearly had gone through and read and kind of understood, probably read their emails, understood they were an interior, like came up with this narrative that sounded on the face like it was literally the mm -hmm. person. Um, and we had a couple of incidents of that that, that both were, were thwarted. But it was scary when you started to see. And, and this was a few years back. So I can only imagine it's getting even worse. Well, yeah, yeah, it it, it 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 is, and and what the carriers are doing, and this is important for for folks to hear, is that they're actually putting stipulations in the policy form that your ops person did a great job. Like you know, like if the, if there's no verbal communication, like phone calls or you know what what have you to to confirm the identity of this person, there even if you had cyber liability insurance. With fraudulent instruction coverage, and you and you and if you're in your case, your uh, your ops person released that money, didn't make a phone call, there would be no coverage for that, even though you. So that is something that everybody needs to hear. I mean, you know, that is the number one cyber exposure for for an RIA is is this fraud, these 
these uh, fraudulent false pretense, you know, that they, they have a whole host of names, you know, out there, but it all starts with social engineering, that phishing to get into your system and, and uh, phishing email. And then, and then God knows, you know, how these, these, you know, fraudsters can work from there. So. Right. Instead with that, and this is the scary thing right about insurance is you can think you have coverage, but if you, as let's say an RIA, don't really haven't read the, you know, I think about it like with a plan sponsor, right? Very few sponsors actually read their plan document. They, they don't really, they have a document or an IPS, right? They get one and they don't really know what it says or what kind of what's required. I think a lot of RIAs, would you say is fair that just because you have coverage doesn't necessarily mean you can sleep well at night. If you don't actually know, you know, you could think you have cyber coverage, but to your point, if you don't know that if you don't do the verbal, let's say, that, you know, even if you had coverage, it's not going to pay. What's your advice? What's your recommendation for RIAs to really understand their policies and actually what the steps they need to take in the event of an incident so that they can have confidence that they didn't waste premiums on insurance that wasn't going to pay out because they didn't keep up their end of the bargain that was required within the policy? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And it's something that keeps me up at night, you know, literally from my team's exposure, communicating that to the clients. Because as I, I, I said, I mean, cyber liability is very prevalent. We're selling hundreds of cyber liability policies to RIAs on a weekly basis. So my biggest concern and consistent message to the team is make sure that everybody buying this understands exactly that provision in, in the agreement. So I guess my short answer to what would the advice be? It's sort of similar to what I said in the fiduciary world at the plan sponsor level. Like you need to hire a fiduciary professional to help you understand this. I think that same logic applies in the insurance world. It'd be nice to buy your insurance from your buddy that you play golf with and, and, and you buy your auto and home and, you know, umbrella policies, personal line stuff. But if he or she doesn't specialize in these type of specialty products, it's probably not the time to give the business there, you know. So I, w- I would say just do a little more due diligence with who you're working with, and the, and their capabilities. And what's the typical? So let's say you know I'm an RIA and I listen to this podcast and I say you know what Tom really knows, you know his stuff and he's having right that that's the the, the power of specialization is, you know, you have more meaningful conversations with the specialist because they know where kind of the bodies are buried. Like what, what is the process that you will typically take? Like, how does it work with an RIA? Say they listen, they say, you know what, I probably should review my coverage or, you know, potentially work with, with, with Tom or with Lachlan. Like what, what's the process that, that they need to go through or that you take them through? Yeah. The, the process that, that I coach and, and we implement, you know, is a more educational approach. So I like to start every conversation with a new relationship with, can I review everything that you have and come back to you with an assessment of of where it is, explain it to you. A lot of times when we go through that example, we might even had that example, you and I back in the day where you're like, oh, okay, this, that, like where you, where the client or the prospect in this, in this case would, would be learning about what they have or don't have, you know, in the process. So to me, we're not selling anything. We're just educating our clients on what they need and what they should be thinking about and how to get it. We obviously can help them, you know, obtain that with our relationships and our 
our underwriting, you know, carrier contracts and things of that nature. But I think that the process starts at a, with a with a complimentary review of what you have. I'm talking coverage. I'm talking limits. You know, dig into the the type of work. Three thirty eight versus three twenty one. You have some large plans that you work like. So just really think about: Do I have the right limit of liability for my profile at my RIA? Just because I'm a quote unquote small to mid size RIA doesn't mean a million dollar limit is sufficient. If you have lots, you know, a handful of large plans, you might have a different exposure than someone in your revenue profile, you know, might have. So I mean. There's way more to it than just buying a policy, as we talked about. We talked about three different policies, right? And and now cyber liability policy, putting requirements in to actually trigger the coverage that you're buying. You need to do this, this, and this. I mean, that's not that's not on the proposal that you're signing when you're accepting it. That's in the fine print. And, you know, so I think that, you know, just, you know, work with credible specialists, you know, in, in, in this day and age. No, I think that's really but this has been, I, I think, a super interesting conversation, Tom. I, I, I think it's a very, very timely topic because a lot of advisors listen to this. You know, I, I would say that that I think now is the time. You know, I, I one of my my best friends actually is a and and former clients was has a a, a PNC brokerage firm, and um, he always used to say that the best way to test whether or not your insurance, your homeowner's insurance is going to pay out, isn't to burn your house down. So that kind of his philosophy was like, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, you're taking the the, the steps before a claim happens because it's a lot harder, you know, once an incident happens to, you, you want to be prepared ahead of time, not after the fact. It's kind of like your taxes, right? You like the time to make tax or to implement tax strategies is before December 31st, not, you know, after mm-hmm. December 31st. Oh, I should have. I just, I think it's a, it's a really, this is a timely, this is a really timely topic. And, you know, part of the value add for advisors, you know, not only is making sure that they've got the right coverage in place, but I think also this is one of the things that separate as being a good partner to their clients. If clients are having issues accessing the insurance markets, you know, finding a specialist to even be able to help clients, there's a tremendous amount of value add when you can help a client work through a really kind of difficult or sticky issue that may not be related to the work you do directly, but being able to, to, to help get them connected with the right folks. I know that plan that I had worked with um, on that, that kind of one-off consulting basis, it just kind of came up in conversation. We were going to dinner one night and they were talking about fiduciary coverage. And I'm like, you know what? I got a guy you should talk to. Um, I'm sure he'd have a conversation with you. He specializes, the market's changing and, and, you know, I know that they were really, really appreciative for that and, and, and whatnot. So one of the things with this podcast is my goal is to really make ERISA fiduciary smarter. And so one of the questions I ask typically at the end of each episode is, you know, as it relates to where you specialize, what's the single best piece of advice that you can offer to advisors from a fiduciary perspective as it relates to what you do? I would say... Take the time to truly understand not just your process, your procedures. I think that most RIAs have a, have a fundamental, at least the ones that we work with, have a fundamental process and they believe in it and they work on that. So I think that that's handled. But from our perspective, I think the assumption of I have the coverage, I'm good, I'm going to not read it and put it in a file and hope to God I never have to realize whether my house burns down or not, that, it, that it's going to be covered or not. So I, I think just 
take the head out of the sand and, and take the extra 15 minutes to ask the right questions or the extra questions to the professionals that you're working with from an insurance perspective, you know, test them, you know, test them. What if we had a cyber breach? If my partner lost his laptop in the airport on his way back, what would you do for me? You know, I mean, just walk your challenge your challenge the professionals that you've hired to to actually be proactive, like you talked about you know, in the tax scenario, like know what the issue, how you're going to face the issue before it actually happens. No, I think, I think being a shortstop, where am I going with this ball before it's hit to me? If it's hit to me, I know I'm going to second then first, right? Like, so you need to know exactly what you're going to do before. It no, I think that's really good advice. I know that you guys have a bunch of resources that locked in and, mm-hmm. and I will link to those in the show notes. And, and, you know, I don't know if you have anything just based on kind of what you just said, like, you know, a lot of times, you know, I think about like RFPs, mm-hmm. sponsors, you know, advisors, typically the RFP, there's like a couple of RFP templates that are out there. And so, you know, I know for us, we tended to see pretty much the same RFP or, or every RFP we got that we responded to had, you know, 95% of the questions were like literally the exact same questions that we, that we had seen. The challenge for plan sponsor or, or that we ran into was that just because plan sponsors were asking the right questions, they actually didn't know how to interpret the answer. The answer. <laughs> yeah. So it's not enough to ask the right questions. You actually have to know at a deeper level how to interpret the answers that you're getting. And, and I would say that I, I'm not sure many advisors, like I know for myself, like, you know, what you just said about like, you know, ask your current current insurance broker you know, test, test them out. What if this, what if that happens? To be honest with you, I didn't even know the question, like, you know, I wouldn't even know the questions to ask. Do you guys have any tools or resources from that perspective? I might've just given you a really good, uh, a really good prospect. You might've seen the, the light bulb over my head. You know, I, I don't think we have anything like that, but that would be a, definitely a, a quality piece. Like arm our clients or prospects or professionals with the right questions to ask. I, I think that the, the and how do you brought up, not just the questions, but then like, yeah. what, are we, what are we looking for here? Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's probably, the, that's definitely mo- more important, but I, I think, you know, Schwab, you brought Schwab up as a custodian and I think that they're doing a really good job of three months, putting these require highlighting social engineering and things of that, putting these requirements out there for all these fee only advisors. So, I mean, it starts at the education, you know, stage it, that, Swab announcement has just generated so much healthy, intelligent conversations with our existing clients to to help us further inform our clients on 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 the things that they may not have been worried about. Now they're a little bit more worried about. Well, I just gave you a prospecting tool idea, so I that's free. Thanks, that's free. That's free of charge, man. Where okay. where can people go to stay connected with you and with what locked in? affinity is working on? What's the best way for people to, to connect? Yeah. So um, our RIA product, we have a, a dedicated website. So that's lockedinaffinityadvisor.com, A-D-V-I-S-O-R.com. You can certainly hit me up on LinkedIn. And my email address is T, my last name, Schrant, S-C-H-R-A-N-D-T at lockedinaffinity.com. Would love to... Uh, you know, schedule a break off conversation with anyone that has any additional questions, um, you know, be available. Awesome. Well, Tom, thank you so much. I, I just on a personal level in growing our firm over the years, you were a really, really important partner for me and for thank our you. firm. So I appreciate that very much. And I think this was great dialogue, 
really interesting. We live in interesting times right now as it relates to fiduciary liability and the in, in insurance and coverage and whatnot. And so I just appreciate you coming on the show and, and providing your insights. And I think, uh, I think listeners will get a lot from it. So thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. It was fun. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Tom Schrant from Lockton Affinity. If you'd like more information or learn more, go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. And while you're there, make sure to check out Fiduciary RX, my new tech platform that helps retirement plan advisors diagnose, prescribe, and improve fiduciary wellness. And make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show when I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. Podcast.